0: I had just so many things going wrong, and just the game wasn't fun for me, and every day was Groundhog's Day. I got up, went to the field, and either got booed or cheered. Most of the time, it was booed, even at home, because we stunk so bad, so for me, it was just like a, what was was my purpose in playing the game of baseball? There was no reason to do it uh, for how I saw it and how I wanted to play the game, and So I literally wanted to quit, and I remember when I got traded, I was so thankful I got traded because I was hoping for a fresh start. I was like, finally, I'll get traded. I'll go to a fresh team. But you know what, man? It just was one of those deals where it's like I I, I got off the plane in Colorado, and I got to the field. I was excited to be with a new team, but yet when I walked into the field, I immediately got depressed. And it was just like, I don't want to be here. So I'm in. I'm lost. I'm confused. Um, um, I, I don't. I, I don't know to talk to. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm walking to the field. Or excuse me. I'm walking to a Starbucks one morning, because I was living downtown in a hotel room. Uh, I, I look across the street and I see this young girl. She's about 16 years old. I'd say between 16 and 18. She had a, a split lip, black eye, torn jeans, just really rough night the night before i mean you could tell it just was not good and she was trembling and eating this cup of noodles without water that she got on the at the right aid probably for a buck or whatever it is and and she's just sitting there eating and i touched her on her shoulder and she kind of jumped away from me just a little bit you know i think she's just scared and i said i don't want anything from you i just want to know if you want something to eat and she looked at me and said yes please and i walked into starbucks and i got a blueberry muffin and one of those like you know, sludgy green drinks that taste good, look bad type deal and with nutrients in it and I was like I I went out and I gave it to her and she ripped it from me and said thank you. And I think when she said thank you, it was almost that whole like the thank you was not a quick thank you of like thanks for the food and she's out. It was like thank you, like a thank you for letting me know I exist. I walked to the field that day and I just was sitting in the bullpen, and I just, for the first time in so long, I was actually enjoying the game that day, and I couldn't figure out why I was just so happy, and reflecting on the day, I knew it, and and I laid in bed that night, and I said, this is why I'm going to play the game. From now on, I don't play the game for myself, wondering what I'm going to get out of it. I want to play the game for other people.
1: This is the Gimme a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. And end of message well, our run on the show continues on with another accomplished guest, a fantastic story. But before we get to him, just a quick reminder, continue to subscribe to the show, tell your friends. We've had a ton going on the last few weeks from the coaching ranks, Larry Kraskoviak, Tad Boyle. We talked a little NBA. We talked some college ball, Steve Lavin, Corey Close. All those episodes are up. Nothing dated in those shows. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to them just yet, feel free to go back and check those out. You know, I'm all about hearing from broadcasters, Michael Kim, the face of 120 Sports, Kevin and Connors, who you can catch on SportsCenter with some great advice, both of those guys for aspiring broadcasters. And, and both of those guys I know read our next guest's name when they were doing highlight reads, whether it's SportsCenter or 120 Sports. And I know this because I know I've said his name a ton over the course of the last few years, a three-time World Series champion, played with the Royals, the Rockies, the Reds, the Giants, earned rings on those San Francisco teams. Jeremy Affelt is our guest today. Jeremy, it is it's great to have you on the show, and I appreciate you stopping by with us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Now we we just met recently. We were on a a panel discussion, and it was quite the the cast of characters. Some accomplished guys like yourself, Derek Lee, who I know is is a a guy that was one of the most feared hitters in baseball when he was playing. Uh, you know, we we Scott Fujita, who obviously did a lot. Sam Pesic, an Olympic uh, medalist, and and I started off with you, and I think the first question I even asked you on this panel was: At what point did you know? That you were going to be good enough to make a career and make a living out of playing baseball. And to me, it was fascinating because you didn't go the college baseball route. Explain to, to people who don't know your story sort of the evolution in in playing in high school and then essentially just going and saying, you know what, I, I can do this at the next level.
0: Yeah, I went to a small high school in Spokane, Washington called Northwest Christian. There's about 500 kids, and that's K through 12 wasn't a very big school we were pretty we're well known for athletics here in in spokane area we're really good basketball team we still are they're just they're it's a good school but there's a lot of athletes that go to that school and uh, so our competitiveness was pretty good our baseball team however really didn't really do a whole lot until our class and my class uh from the time we were freshmen until we graduated all we're all very good athletes and very good baseball players and we did really well there we've had several people that transferred out of that school because they thought they needed a bigger school with a better situation, and they, they felt like they could get more people seeing them to, to play sports collegiately or uh, pro, professional-wise, and I never did. I just stayed there, and I played summer ball with, with, with some of the kids in the city that played on these bigger high schools, and I was found, basically the scouts found me because I was in summer ball, and they were all watching, and the, there's a couple other kids that we knew of in the city that the scouts were actually watching, and they, I think they just happened to see me while they are watching the other guys, and. Before I knew it, by the time I ended my junior year, the summer going in between my junior and senior year, uh, at the end of the summer, I had had over 30 scouts come up, talk to me, fill out, you know, all these different, you know, whatever, these questionnaires you have you fill out. It was kind of overwhelming for me a little bit, and then I uh, didn't think much of it until the baseball season um, my senior year, and I think my first game, there ended up being like 30-plus scouts at the game. There's more scouts and fans, you know? So it's kind of an interesting deal for me, uh, and and you know then the Gonzaga coach came out and I'm a good friend with him actually still to this day and he had offered me a full ride um, to come to that college and then I uh, went on a couple other recruit trips and I just you know overall for me I just I was drafted in the third round by the by the Royals and you know my, they paid for my college education if baseball didn't work out they had given me some money to go to college and my mom was a school teacher fought that a little bit but i think my dad convinced her to let me go play uh he had joined the military when he was 18 and uh we turned out all right so i don't think he was really concerned with me uh not going to college right away and um to be honest with you i, I did not know i i mean i went to the minor leagues i had a rough few first few years in the minor leagues uh and I, I wanted to quit i wanted to not play anymore you know several times in the minor leagues and I ended up having some coaches that kind of got around me and 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 really shaped me as a pitcher. And I got to the big leagues when I was 22. Uh, but to be honest with you, I didn't even know once I got to the big leagues if I was good enough to be in the big leagues. I really didn't. I, my first four and a half years were a real struggle. Uh, you know, I had some success early, and then I struggled really bad late. And and I think, frankly, if I was on a different team, if I wasn't on such a bad team. Uh, then I, I probably wouldn't have stayed at the big league level. Uh, I've probably been sent down uh, because I've seen some kids that, you know, had had been having pretty good years and still got sent down just because the option scenario and they needed other guys to, uh, to, to be able to fill a roster based on need. And I never left for whatever reason, it was pretty awesome. And, and I stayed there the whole time and, and I got traded in, uh probably in 06, four and a half years into the big leagues, I was traded and, um, was frustrated with the game and, and was just frustrated with uh, just not being, understanding who I was as a baseball player, a pitcher, a competitor. They didn't, I didn't even know why I was playing the game. Uh, There's a lot of different things going into play. And then I just, you know, for then I had a, an interesting experience in Denver when I got traded and it changed my life. It changed my career. And I uh, ended up having, you know, the last, you know, seven and a half years or so, eight and a half years, of, well, shoot, actually nine and a half years of my career ended up being pretty good. And, I walk away with four World Series, uh, uh, you know, you know my team, I went to the World Series four different times and have a pretty decent record there in the playoffs and, and uh, three championship rings to show for it. So overall, it was awesome, but it took me a while to figure out if I really was supposed to be there.
1: You know, I, I want to ask you about that encounter uh, in Denver that you said changed your life, but there's a lot to digest with your path. So when you get drafted, you're what, 17, 18? You're 18 at that point, right? And you go to the minors. You get you get drafted in that third round by the Royals. What's life like? Is that your first time? Because you traveled a lot, right, growing up, because you said your dad was military. I'm assuming you were kind of all over the place. But you're living by yourself, right? I mean, that's, you know, I, I think people go to college and they're still trying to figure it out. And here you are. You're actually working. You know, it's baseball, but it's still a job for you.
0: Yeah, it is. It, it is still a job. And I mean you sent away at 18 years of age, I think you think every kid does to a point initially when they sign, a lot of kids opt to go to college because it's like, you know, I want the college experience I you know, I want to, I don't know if I'm ready. Um, I'd like to play college baseball. I like to get an education, all these different things. I, I opted to go to professional baseball. And I think all the high school kids that do that, I don't think they're fully aware of who they are and what, the, what really, what really is going on. And I, I walked into a situation where, I mean, I didn't even, I mean, I, I pretty much just, you know, walked into a situation where all of a sudden I'm, I'm living in Washington State, and I get sent out to Fort Myers, Florida, which is the furthest possible place you could be sent, uh, you know, away from your family at 18 years of age. And you walked into this hotel, and you had a roommate, and you had – they said, here you go, and that was it. There was no – there was no – here's a transition. There was like, hey, man, just kind of follow everybody else, do what everybody else does, and kind of learn your deal. And next thing I knew, I was – you know, I was making a little bit of a paycheck, not very much. And I was living in a hotel and I was having to fend for my own, you know, food and dinner and and make ends meet and wash my own clothes, which I had no idea how to do. And, you know, I just had a lot of stuff going on. And I, I had to grow up really quick because I had to figure out who I was and what I was about, and how to function, and take care of myself and and, and and control my own scenario, per se, because you didn't have the parents to protect you. You didn't have the parents to you pay your bills and all these different things. And so I had to grow up pretty quick and it was an interesting experience, but I'm thankful for it to this day. I feel like I've had a lot of experiences. I did travel a lot as a kid, but this year, you know, me having to travel and fend for myself, I got married at 20 years of age and, um, my wife and I, you know, even went to the minor leagues together and, and, and I, I think we, we grew up and we became strong because of it. And uh, I think we're better because of it, but it was definitely a struggle
1: your wife and getting married at 20. I've had a few coaches on Larry Kruskoviak, Tad Boyle, who I mentioned at the top of this podcast. Um, next week's show is actually Rick Neuheisel, who is one of uh, my colleagues here at Pac-12 Network. And, and I know his wife, but I, I bring up the live situation because the coaches always talk about just their wives and how thankful they are that their wives are so patient because of the moves because they were they were grinding it out not making a lot of money especially when they first started in their careers. I got to think it that's got to be a really difficult thing to navigate as a married man going through the minors, having the dream of maybe playing baseball and and at the professional level. Just sort of the sacrifice that that both of you guys have to make in that situation.
0: 100%, you know, I my my wife, you know, she went to school for 2 years out of high school and she was did some interior design stuff and then we got married and and i mean we i mean we were in apartment our first year being married in spring training we lived in a house with you know uh three other ball players and just to make rent in spring training and then we go to the season and i'm in a house with uh with two other teammates or an apartment excuse me two or a three-bedroom apartment and i have two teammates with us so my wife, who <laughs> she's just married to me, all of a sudden she goes in. Next thing I want an apartment. She's in an apartment with three men, and and trying. She's a neat freak, right? So she's clean. I mean, she's fine in all kinds. She, I mean, she's, she has got trash everywhere. She's she. I mean, yeah, you know, I I personally never did tobacco, but you know, she walks out into the living room and she's all of a sudden looking at these dip cups on the ground and she's like, "What?" Is,? I mean, it was a complete culture shock, a little bit for. Her uh, to, to go through this. And she took a job and I remember reality for me, man, we, 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 uh, you know, we, you know, I remember getting my first paycheck in a ball and she worked part time at Nordstrom's and she made more money in her paycheck than I did. And I was at the field every day, all day, like, and, and, you know, she's having to go to work to help pay the rent, but she's making more money working 20 hours a week than I was making. And, and we, we had to do a lot of different things. We learned a lot of – we learned how to survive. And we learned – and then the next year, we were on our own in AA. Again, she was working a little bit, and, and, and we're in our own apartment. And we kind of – we got to the big leagues with two years after we were married. I skipped AAA and went to the big leagues in 02, which was amazing then too because, I mean, you know, you, know so you can get those paychecks, and they're a lot different, you know. But I feel like we had to go through a lot of things. And my wife, to still this day, had to put a lot of stuff on hold, you know, because so she's – She's used her, some of her degree to do some things for friends and her own self and stuff like that. But, you know, she, we, you know, we kind of, you know, everybody kind of would think, well, boo-hoo, you know, she had to put her dream on hold to bounce around and be with a major league athlete. But it's not glamorous for the wives all the time, to be honest with you. It's it, we, 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 live a, we live life. And I know there's media and everything pumps us, you know, entertainers and all that stuff. And there is truth to that. But the reality of it is we still have problems. Now, we might not have similar problems that other people have but we have our own issues and, and, and we got to function as life. And so our wives don't sit there. My wife, especially never looked at me as some amazing per I come home and it wasn't like, Oh my gosh, Jeremy, my amazing major league athlete husband. That's not, that's not how it goes, you know? And, and, uh, trust me, I walk into the home and it's like trash needs to be taken out. Hey, I need to take my car. I need to take my car in. I need to, you know, do this, help me cut up the vegetables. For the food. It was like, you know, it's not like, you know, some, you know, crazy deal here, you know? So, you know, for her, she had to put a lot of stuff on hold. And we had kids and now she now that I'm retired, she's actually still, now she's starting to chase her dreams even more. You know, she's doing a horse thing where she's riding horses and enjoying that because that's what she did as a kid and showing horses and we're skiing as a family and we're doing all the things we were never able to do. We had to put a lot of stuff on hold and sacrifice to, to be the major league, you know, family, but it had its perks. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it also is not as, Uh, glamorous
1: as one would think those romantic dinners with uh in a ball with uh two other dudes there i'm sure (laughs) wasn't exactly what i do (laughs) (laughs) i i bet that is the case i bet that's the case what what now when you're you're going through this path and this journey is do you reflect back like while it's happening you probably don't realize how great it is or maybe it wasn't great but like do you think back at those moments fondly you know, whether it was having the, the two dude roommates in there or just some of the the kind of the grind, the process, what it took to get to that point. Do you look back at that struggle and, and say, boy, I wouldn't exchange it for the world?
0: Yeah, I really wouldn't. I hated it. I don't wish it upon anybody necessarily, some of the struggles that I had, but I also don't feel like I really think – I don't think I would have became the, the athlete that I think I became if I didn't go through those struggles. You know, I think there was a – there's, there was there was a lot of good stuff that happened, and I learned real quick that you don't succeed through through doing well all the time I, In fact, I don't think anybody succeeds from ever doing well. I think that's a product of your hard work and the failures that you go through That's a symptom I think that's what happens that when you the one that succeeds a lot and, and su- succeeds really well is one that if you look back through the course of his career through his lifeline, there's been a lot of failures in that frustrating moments moments where you like we're angry and sad and crying and, and frustrated and, 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 and just, just wanting to quit and not. And there is something to that. I don't feel like anybody that I've, that I've ever read about, and I've done a lot of reading on people who are successful because I like to know the mindset of people who are successful. They're not successful because they woke up one day, had an idea and it worked or everything they ever did worked. They're, 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 it does not happen. And one that succeeds to succeed a lot you know, early and never failing. People are like, man, he's never failed. He's never, you know, had anything go wrong. Well, yeah, for right now. But let's see as he goes through life if he never learned to fail, and he was always protected from failing. Let's see what happens when an uncontrollable happens and they fail later in life and they never learned it at an early age, and chaos hits. And you see that a lot. And you see that a lot with some of these athletes that don't look like they ever fail, and then all of a sudden their career is over. And 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 there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. And they ended up. They ended up just. They, I mean, I mean, you read all these athletes that are homeless or these athletes that are in drug rehabs and it, you know all these addicted, these chaotic things that you think their life was completely perfect, yet it wasn't. And 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 I and so for me, I, I look at all the stuff I've went through, and I I see it more than I've ever seen it because I do so much public speaking now that I have a story, that I can throw out little nuggets out of every story because I have had so much happen to me. And I'm okay with it. I used to think I was a hard luck pitcher, a bad luck pitcher. All all the bad stuff always happens to me and I'm always just, just good enough to stay in the big leagues. But everything bad, if it happens in a game, happens when I'm pitching. You know, stuff like that. I used to complain and get frustrated and get angry, but now I look back and I think, you know what? I I think there's so much good that came out of that and it really shaped me not only as a baseball player, but as a person when I'm raising my sons, when I'm you know, when I'm trying to encourage my wife and we're going through marriage Normal marriage scenarios and issues, we, there, there, there's learning things that you go through, and I learned that at such an early age where now I embrace some of those things. I don't enjoy them by any means, and I don't like say, man, I hope you get to go through it. I would never say that to anybody, but I do also embrace it at the same time and know that it's, something good's going to come out of it.
1: Jeremy, so when you're in the bigs, what's, what's that low point?
0: uh failure what's failure look like when you're in the big leagues uh is that what you're asking
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah well there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the you know when you fail on a big league level you fail in the minor leagues excuses it's okay we're developing you right you're we're we're developing failure's gonna happen we're trying to when you fail at the big league level you cost a lot of people money you know it's not just you you know you're costing wins and losses to a lot of different people whether it be coaches managers GMs, presidents, team owners, like marketing teams, all that stuff lose out on that deal. So this it's not a development. When you get to the big leagues, it's a what have you done for me lately and you better win because you're expect you're expected to win. Figure it out. And the teams that don't have that expectation are the teams that you see not being very good ever and no one cares about. So like there is a high expectation at the major league level and and to fail at the major league level, I mean especially now I mean, you've got Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and media putting their stuff on Twitter and they shame you. And And, and a lot of, and, and media have a hard time because they don't know they're doing their job. So it's a hard thing for them to do. They're trying to report what happened, but yet in the other sense of it, they're actually reporting on someone's failure and they're exposing it to everybody, to millions of people. And so it's a natural thing for ballplayers to be shamed and to be insecure, because the fact of the matter is, is we, we we can't function at these levels that people expect us to function at on an everyday basis. We're not robots. And so to fail on these on these levels, you have to have this mindset of like the sun comes up the next day. The good thing is we play six out of seven days most of the time, you know, a week. And I'm going to have another chance quickly. And as soon as I succeed, all those other things are going to go away. I can move on. And, and it, it, it's very hard mentally, but it, it's very frustrating. And you'll see that most guys, especially in baseball, because of how, how, how mentally tough it is to play the game because we play so often. We don't play once a week on Sundays. No offense to the NFL, but we don't, you know, that's, we play every day. And to to be able to hit that grind every day and to go to the ballpark every day and to compete every day at the top of your game is what the expectation level is, you just can't do it. And, and so when you fail at that level, you have to be strong enough to say those things happen. I don't care what the media says. I don't care what the fans say. I don't care what the GM and the coaches. I mean, they might be frustrated, but they're frustrated because they lost a the game. But I got to move on and be ready for the next game. And, and you have to be so mentally tough and thick-skinned, it is very, very difficult to do. And a lot of guys get weeded out in the minor leagues over that, but especially at the big league level. If you're not mentally tough, you will not survive. You might get away for three, four, five years, but that's about it, and you're out. And I don't have never faced or played with mentally weak people at the major league level that have lasted anywhere near more than five years in the game. You just can't do it. And... So for me, you know, to fail at the at the major league level, you have to know how to focus and go through life, living with a little bit of some insecurities to drive you, and dealing with shame and how to handle it, you know, at, at the major league level. But it, it it wrecks guys. It can. It can very easily wreck guys, and it causes their identity to become different. It causes their character to become different. You see guys, and they just, I became different. I I even saw it in my relationships outside of the game, where I just didn't trust a lot of people. I didn't trust my own wife, I, you know, I, you know, with me because I didn't, I, I guarded myself so much because I couldn't let people into who I really was because I failed and I hated failing. And I hated being exposed for my failure, but it's the job in which I played. So it's very difficult uh, as a human being to play sports in general.
1: Jeremy, you've said this before. There was a point in your career where you hated baseball. You're telling me about some of those low points, the grind, what it was like to try to to stay strong, maybe some trust issues that you had as well. What's the what's that turning point for you?
0: You know, when I got traded uh, in 2006, I got traded from Colorado to, or excuse me, Kansas City to Colorado, and. I hate, I mean, I, I literally hated baseball. I mean, for four and a half years, the first couple of years were great. I had done okay. But then there was this fact where you just lost as much as we did in Kansas city. And I was moved from a starter to a closer, to a reliever, to a left-handed specialist, back to a starter, back to a reliever, to a setup man, close a little bit again. I mean, I said, no, I had no idea what I was uh, as a baseball player, none whatsoever. And so for me, to you know to, to to continue playing the game. I just got so angry with it. And I remember I, I got tired of failing and the game seemed to get worse and I had some weird injuries uh, that I pretty much dealt with my whole career obviously. But I had some weird had some blister finger problems where I had to have my nail removed. I had oblique tears and I had just so many things going wrong and just the game wasn't fun for me. And every day was Groundhog's Day. I got up, went to the field, and either got booed or cheered. Most of the time it was booed, even at home, because we stunk so bad. So for me, it was just like a, what was I? What was my purpose in playing the game of baseball? There was no reason to do it uh, for how I saw it and how I wanted to play the game. And so I literally wanted to quit. And I remember when I got traded, I was so thankful I got traded because I was hoping for a fresh start. I was like, finally, I'll get traded. I'll go to a fresh team. But you know what, man? It just was one of those deals where it's like I, I I got off the plane in Colorado and I got to the field. I was excited to be with a new team, but yet when I walked into the field, I immediately got depressed. And it was just like I don't want to be here. I mean, just it's just this mentality of you go and you're trying to compete and things aren't working out. You just it's like ah, you're just so self-absorbed with you with your own life and you're exhausted and mentally exhausted, emotionally exhausted. I just I wasn't liking the game, but I couldn't tell anybody because no one's going to resonate with someone that says I hate being a major league athlete. I'm yeah, miserable yeah. being a major league athlete. No one's going to say, "Oh, I feel for you, Jeremy." And nobody, right? So I'm in. I'm lost. I'm confused. Um, um, I, I don't. I, I don't know to talk to. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm walking to the field, or excuse me, I'm walking to a Starbucks one morning because I was living downtown in a hotel room. And and uh, I I look across the street and I see this young girl, she's about 16 years old, I'd say between 16 and 18. She did not look very old. And I I cross the street and and, and there's this, this, this the 16th Street Mall is like just the main one of the main streets that you can't take cars down. There's a little trolley that runs it. Most people are walking it, but it's the street that you would walk down in Denver to eat to shop. And there's a lot of street kids for whatever reason, a lot of high school. It seems like teenagers that are on the streets and homeless and I don't know why they flock there. I don't know if there's a security blanket for them because there's strength among numbers or, or what, but it seems like there's a lot of them there. And, and she had a, a split lip, black eye, torn jeans, just really rough night the night before. I mean, you could tell it just was not good. And she was trembling and eating this cup of noodles without water that she got on the at the right Aid probably for a buck or whatever it is. And And she's just sitting there eating. And I touched her on her shoulder, and she kind of jumped away from me just a little bit, you know. I think she's just scared. And I said, I don't want anything from you. I just want to know if you want something to eat. And she looked at me and said, yes, please. And I walked into Starbucks, and I got a blueberry muffin and one of those, like, you know, sludgy green drinks that taste good, look bad type deal and with nutrients in it. And I was like, I, I went out, and I gave it to her, and she ripped it from me and said, thank you. And, but she didn't just say thank you. She looked at me and said thank you. And we actually kind of, kind of stared at her and we kind of stared at each other for a few minutes. And it was the weirdest thing because I had this weird connection with her because I was like thinking, like, you just, she just almost saw into my soul almost like, man, you know what? You are lost. You are confused. You are scared. You have no idea who you are. And frankly, you probably don't even know what life's going to look like in a few hours for you. And, 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 and there's so much confusion. And yet, no one no one knows you exist. And I think when she said thank you, it was almost that whole like the thank you was not a quick thank you of like thanks for the food and she's out. It was like thank you, like a thank you for letting me know I exist because so many people and we all do it. We walk on the other side of the street or we all of a sudden get this instant deafness where someone asks us for money or something to eat and we act like we don't hear them or the fake phone call comes in on the cell phone so you can act like you're preoccupied you know like it happens to all of us it's an uncomfortable situation at times and for her to say thank you it was like man you, you let me know i existed and i needed this food and i was like i need that same thing like you you i wear nicer clothes i obviously have a place to work i make a pretty good paycheck and i i have a shelter over my head that's pretty nice and, and you you don't have any of that yet emotionally and in our souls. We're in the same place, scared, lost, not knowing who to talk to. You know, and it was. I walked to the field that day and I just was sitting in the bullpen. And I just, for the first time in so long, I was actually enjoying the game that day. And I couldn't figure out why I was just so happy and reflecting on the day. I knew it and and I laid in bed that night and I said this is why I'm gonna play the game from now on I don't play the game for myself wondering what I'm gonna get out of it I want to play the game for the people I want to play the game to be able to be on a platform that allows me to have a voice to speak into other people's lives to know that I put my pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else and that there are pains in communities of the teams of which I play and we need to be more vocal and active in that. And I want to use whatever I have, whether it's maybe financial means, whether it be having the voice of the media right there, the platforms to be able to get in the communities because I'm a baseball player, whatever I can have. I just had this epiphany when I was laying in bed and I was like, I want to use this as an a, a, as a means to get in and to help out these situations, whether it be for my future kids to, to be, have opportunities or for, for people who live on the street or poverty scenarios. And then I got into poverty. I got into understanding what poverty looked like in communities and, and what we can do to help and how I can help. And, and, and you see it now. These ballplayers have fundraisers, and, and they're able to raise to tons of money for causes. And I said, this is why I play the game. And you flip over that baseball card, and you'll see from 02 to 06, it was not that great. And from 07 to when I retired, I think there was one year in there that might be bad. And it was my last year, you know, when I wasn't playing on all cylinders, my body was hurting so bad. And, and I just had a great time playing the game, obviously three, four World Series in that time frame, three World Championships, platforms, able to speak, opportunities out the wazoo to be able to make impact. And I'm so thankful that I met that girl that changed my whole focus on why I do what I do and gave me a reason for succeeding, not just for my own selfish needs, and and that was very important to me.
1: Well, Generation Alive is the group that you're talking about that you work with, uh, not to mention you, you have a blog that, that you, you're updating pretty consistently. I want to get to all that in just a second here, but you mentioned those World Series, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast thought that maybe the, the bulk of it was playing stories and what it was like to be teammates with this guy or the most feared hitter that you faced or whatever the case may be. But Three World Series is... I mean, that's hard. That is that. There, are, I mean, there's a small, small, small percentage of all the the major league players that can ever boast that accomplishment. And you have those three rings. What's before we get to some of the stuff that you're doing and, and uh, some of the groups and, and that you're helping out and, and, and across the board here? What's that like to win a World Series and the difference between one and two and that third? Do the feelings and the emotions surrounding a championship change when you've done it before?
0: Yeah, you know, I you know when we went to the first World Series, Colorado, we lost to Boston. I mean, it was so much like God, this is going to be the only chance to win a World Series. I mean, you're never going to. I played with Ken Griffey Jr. and all these guys that never even got there, right? And it's like, oh man, this is going to be like the only opportunity. And we lost four. We didn't even win a game, you know. And and so I never knew or thought I would ever get back. I was just I was just riding the coattails of actually having the ability to have the appearances I had and doing so well in the world series when I had my chance to pitch right and uh when we got to San Francisco in 2009 we had a pretty decent team and we we did okay we just didn't have we just didn't quite click but then in 2010 we didn't have you know 2010 2012 and 2014 to be frankly honest with you I don't even know if ever we had the best team in the game uh 2014 we had a pretty good team uh 2012 decent team but i don't know if we were i don't know if necessarily we were better overall than detroit was you know they had a pretty well they pretty decently stacked team and 2010 we definitely did not have the best team we just had the good chemistry and i learned a lot from from being on these championship teams because i realized that it's not necessarily the most talented one you got to be healthy and two i think it's more like how you work as it how, how your team works together and I'll tell you what I I uh, when we when we won when when Brian Wilson struck out uh, basically you know he struck the last guy out on a cutter in and it was I mean y- you saw the strikeout and and you saw and, and at first you didn't even it was a, you sat there and you saw the swing but then and you saw when you saw Buster throw his gear off that's when the whole bullpen was like we just won the world like what like I mean sprinting across the field you were floating because you're like we had won the world series not I mean this is I mean it was amazing and 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 when no one picked us to win it you know like and and it was such a we were so excited and we're jumping up and down and and we're just just the excitement of of being you know popping the champagne and but it, but we won it all it's it, it, there's no tomorrow we, we, we walked we walked on top man it was just and i'm getting on the plane literally sitting there and just being completely exhausted mentally you were just like we just won the world series and then you feel it right and then you don't but then the impact really doesn't stop there you, you're super excited you won the world series you're pumped up You know, we want it all. But then when they say the parade, you're like, oh, whatever, we'll do the parade. But then when you walk, I mean, you see the, I mean, I mean, you see the line. When you land and you're driving at 3, 4 in the morning, we landed from from Texas and we're driving back to the, we're driving back to the field and you see the line of cars at 4 in the morning that are lined up along the freeway just waiting for our buses to drive back that are honking their horns and standing on their hoods and holding their flags because they knew the only time there would be four buses driving back from the airport area would be our team. So, I mean, just to see that and the people sitting in front of the stadiums lined up packed in there at 4 in the morning. And then you're like, man, the parade's not even for two days. And then you get in the parade with millions of people then, and the decibel level is so deafening. And you see all these things that, that take place. I mean, you're just overwhelmed by what it did to the city. I had no idea what winning a world championship would do to a city. Zero. And and to see what we got to do and to ride down those streets and Market Street uh, was, was amazing. And then when we did it in 2012 and again in 2014, I mean, your celebrations became, you're a little more experienced with your celebrations. You're a little more experienced with how to compete in certain situations when other teams weren't because we had done it before. But when you win the third one in twenty fourteen, game seven, I mean that was the that was probably the toughest of all the World Series obviously. And in game seven, I pitched in that game. It was probably the biggest game of my career ever. And and the stress level was amazing how high it was. But to win there and you know for me to win that third World Series, that's my favorite one. For one, I got brought up like I said, I got drafted by Kansas City. Yeah. So when I left Kansas City I felt like a complete loser. I hated the game of baseball. And my last game on that field I walked away as a champion, and not just a champion. I was the winner of Game Seven. So my wife, I mean, that was the first time she didn't have a newborn child. And all the other World Series, she had a newborn child. And she was, I mean, I mean, it was She was coming to these World Series games. So finally, she didn't have a baby. She got to come on her own. She left the kids. She's like, no, no, the kids will celebrate when we get back. I'm coming to World Series without a newborn strapped to my chest, you know. And and uh, and, and so she. And I just remember when I was the winner of Game 7, we won that game the way we won it, an intense way we won it Game 7, and and my wife running into the locker room and just crying cause it was like, for me, it was the most amazing moment. We were both crying because it it was, one, my oldest son never got a World Series ring because my other two boys uh, were born in the other years, and my son was born in the year we lost. So he, he the other two boys get the other rings. And so just knowing that my third, my my oldest now gets that last ring, and he says it's his. He still says that's my ring. You know, like he <laughs> to know that I have three world championships for a, rings for each one of my boys, and to know that I walked off of Kansas City as a champion. When the last time I left there, it was a feeling like a loser. I mean, it was like a complete circle of life for baseball and the perseverance that I stuck out when I wanted to quit. And th- it was like it was a true kiss from heaven for me because I'm standing on this field. The game seven winner of a world champion on the very field that I wanted to take the uniform off and never play the game again. And 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 to walk into that clubhouse and then take my stuff and say, you know what, you you, you set a record. We're gonna need your stuff to the Hall of Fame. I mean, it it was unbelievable. It was my wife and I we just sat there and cried as we were hugging each other. It was an amazing experience. And and to, to now walk into the to, to go through that last parade. that understanding and to be able to give the speech that they allowed me to give in front of all those people. I mean, what an amazing, amazing end to a a career. I played, obviously, one year after that, but I kind of knew it was the end. And and it was the end because I wanted to respect the end. And I could have kept playing. I could still play today. I I think I can get in shape right now and try and play Major League Baseball. I truly feel that. But I want to respect everything about the career. And in that, there's no greater way to end your career. And and so it was awesome for me, and every one of them got better. And, I, I mean, what a, I, I don't even – sometimes I look back, I can't even believe that I'm actually I – mean, not, not only that, you're a three-time religious champ, but you're a dynasty. You're part of a dynasty, which are very rare in this game. And, I mean, it, it is – it was – I mean, there's nothing more honorable than how my career unfolded, the frustrations, the failures, the successes, the highs, the lows, the, the champagne popping to the – uh, wanting to pack up my bag and take the uniform, quit and go home. I mean, it was a full full circle career for me, and and I went through every level of emotion. And I, I don't think there's very many ballplayers that can say they went through every level. I think a lot of us have gone through stuff, but I truly believe that I went through every single level because I have a story for every situation, and that, that I think I can that I think I can help build leaders on. And it was amazing for me.
1: You tell me this story and you talk about the highs. You said, hey, what it was like to be in San Francisco, be on Market Street. And I was, you know, we launched Pac-12 Network in in 2012. So I remember being around in San Francisco and and being a guy that grew up on the East Coast, you know, a Mets fan and uh, growing up in that, you know, northern New Jersey, New York City area. I'd never experienced living in a place where an entire city was galvanized by by essentially sport right i mean that's what we saw in san francisco you know in new york it's not like that because you know, half the city that's mets fans or maybe more than half is probably yankee fans but you know the real true fans um are mets fans of course and uh you know you got the knicks you got the nets you got uh the islanders and the rangers and and uh, the devils you got so many sports teams but in the bay area you know and there are obviously there are the a's and the giants but the city really is all about the giants and you were able to use the success that you had on the football field to really impact a larger group. And you, you told the story about meeting that homeless girl that was 16 when you were in Denver with the Rockies. Generation Alive, that's your group, you do so much for kids, you have your blog, which is very, the, the overtones are are really religious on your blog, by the way, and, and I'm sure you know, but anyone who's gonna go and check those out, and I'll put the, in the show notes, uh, you know, where you can go and, and take a look and, and read that blog. But talk to me about Generation Alive and, and the things that that group does.
0: Yeah, so a lot of what we do at Generation of Lives, we, we're building servant leaders, and and we do a lot of stuff in poverty because we just believe that access service is a big way to build leaders. Because you know, for me, you have to have a characteristic about you when you when you want to be a servant leader, you have to have that idea of not thinking of oneself, and you want to get ahead, and you want to, but you don't want to be a dictator. And uh, for me, there there are things in in, in poverty where when you walk down streets or it, it doesn't even it, it it's just an impoverished mind right even if it's not like the poor like the looking at someone who's hungry or or without you know shelter it's you know when i look at someone that can be impoverished it could be even like you know what i can see you're struggling with life you're you have you have a poverty issue it's just your mindset on life you're lacking something that you really need you know and so that's building servant leaders and and for me you know when i started generation alive uh it was it it was to build leaders but but the best way that we have found that we can get into schools and do to, to really train these certain leaders is is to teach on idea on the on the on, on leading with the with the, with with compassion. And why we do that is because when you feel bad for somebody, that's sympathy, right? That's like oh, you know, or empathy type thing too, right? It's an empathetic thing where you walk through and you see someone without food and you're like, oh man, that sucks, you know? And then you move on there is that feeling. But when you put an action to that feeling, that's called compassion. When you say, oh, that does suck that you don't eat. I'm gonna find a way to get you some food. There's the act of compassion. And that's where people will start to like say, I can follow someone that wants to act like that. When they see a need and they wanna figure out a way to help heal that or fix that need, that's what we need, frankly, in this country. So, So for me to see, to, to build a servant leader, I wanted to start with what's a foundation of that servant leader and that act of compassion is it. And so we have this generation alive and, and we're doing really well and, and we're having a great time. And and a lot of what we do here in Spokane, uh, you know, where we're headquartered out of is we have action teams. And these action teams, these interns go in and they have like an area where they say, well, I've got this elementary school area that, that basically pumps this high school in the area. So we're going to have this as my area. And then we have different groups around the city that have their their areas, and they go in, and they, they they do these action teams, which is basically these these small clubs that we teach on servant leadership. And and then we come in, and then we try to show them, and then we have programs. One of our programs called Something to Eat, and it's a hunger initiative because it's one of those things where it's like, okay, here's an easy, tangible way to understand how you can put your servant mentality, your servant leadership mentality to work. So this is one program that we can do, that everybody can do. It costs 25 cents to feed somebody. So these, you know, these second graders are like, it's only a quarter to give someone food? Yep, it is. And so they go out and they find quarters in their couches and they do fundraisers and it, create, it creates a little bit of creativity too, right? Where it's like, how do we create fundraisers to raise this money? And so these kids have these, all these different ways to raise money and to give back. And it's so empowering for these kids because now – you go into these elementary and these high school, some of these elementary schools are raising, uh, you know, 30,000 money to, to put 30,000 meals together. And then the whole school goes into a gymnasium and we put out tables and we put out all the building stations and all the food that they need. It's all dried food. And they basically pour the rice and the protein and the, you know, all these different things in there and the dried vegetables. And, and then we put a little recipe in there, you know, to add some chicken broth or whatever to kind of spice, you know, kind of create some, you know, soup type stuff. For people that can't afford a lot, you can afford a 99 cent can of chicken broth or whatever it is, 59 cent can. You know, so it's very easy and simple, and has all the nutrients for an entire day in it. And we have now we can fill food pantries with this stuff. has a three year shelf life because it's dried, and people love it. and And these kids are now basically going into servant leadership classes, being developed on how to be a servant leader. To transitioning into raising funds to give back, to go into the something to eat program, to now pump these you know food banks full of food, and then I try to say, look, you realize what you did? That's called unconditional love, which means you go in there and you see you see a need, you you act on your compassion, and then you show unconditional love because these people have never done anything for you, they never said anything to you, they haven't given you anything, and you're willing to feed them just because. You have been, when you're hungry, you eat. I said, that's called loving your neighbor as yourself. When you're hungry, you feed yourself. So when you see someone hungry, you want to feed them. And that's going to carry through your life. And as you go into your job, you go into your education, and you become somebody in life, remember what you're learning. You're learning that I'm going to become great, not for myself, but I'm going to become great so that I can help other people become great. And to create avenues for them to be to, to to reach their top ability to become great, and that's eliminating some of the issues that's keeping them from that. Whether it be shelter, education, hunger, water, keeping them out of poverty, so they don't get put into human trafficking, and we we get all these different uh, scenarios into play, and these kids are loving it. And and then we do some stuff with hunger with with uh, human trafficking as well, where they, these kids are making a lot of college, mostly college. The high school we do some awareness stuff, but you know anything below that we got to be you know sensitive to the topic so yeah. you know we'd stay in the high school colleges mostly on this stuff and these colleges Gonzaga just did this huge packing event where they packed bags full of female products and bras and underwears and, and deodorant and and toothbrushes And they made these packs for these girls when they come off the street when we rescue them from trafficking they don't have any of this stuff and so they love it these girls I mean it's well received and there's acts of compassion through, every, you know, through different programs, and that's what we do at Generation Alive. We're really raising leaders, serving leaders, but we're also giving them programs that they can tangibly see, feel, touch what it looks like to, to act on compassion and to lead through acts of service. It's a fun program. We're really loving it.
1: Jeremy, I can't help but think that maybe you don't do this if you don't have that encounter with that, that 16-year-old girl in, in Denver, well, roughly 16-year-old uh, in Denver. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Oh yeah, for sure because I didn't at that time, you know, it was a weird deal. I mean, that's what set me out into the poverty world. I mean, I used to be just like everybody else, and I'm not really ashamed to say it because it's it's, it's something that's like, hey man, it happens, but I'm I, I it literally the fact is that I looked at stuff just like everybody else did in the sense that when I saw someone who was in was was homeless, get a job. You know, like, hey, if you weren't lazy, maybe that wouldn't happen. It's not that hard. Quit peddling fear of money and, and asking for handouts, and go over to that McDonald's right there and give yourself a shave and look presentable and go work somewhere. I used to be like that, and and for me it was like you see this 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 girl that's like I don't think she's lazy. I really don't. I think she made a life decision based on her 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 her, her being lost, frustrated, and who knows what her home life was like. I mean. So then you start looking at, then you start really understanding what homelessness and poverty looks like, and it could be completely out of your control. I just met a woman the other day that's a registered nurse, and she's living in her car, and she's a nurse, and she says, "I lost my house, I I said, I, I don't have where to live, like, like I, you know, and I'm I'm now I've lost my job, I'm trying to get my nurse stuff. I mean, you, you you and and she was crying. She goes, it can happen to anybody, and 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 so for me you know, it is not, I I don't, if I don't meet that girl, I still walk through this attitude of like, you know, like whatever, like you made a bad decision. It's not my fault, you know? And, and that's not at all how I think anymore. And regardless of whether the decision was good or bad, or if it's their fault or not their fault, I don't care. My whole reason to be on this earth is for is because I'm a humanitarian and I believe in the fact that life is valued. And when I see it devalued or, or, or no one showing value into someone else's life, I don't see the point because everybody has a soul, everybody has a heartbeat. And as long as you have a heartbeat, you have purpose on this earth. And so you might be homeless and you might look like you're nothing, but you have a heartbeat, therefore there's a reason why you're here. And until that heart stops, I don't believe that your purpose stops. And so for me that's what I want to pour into and I wanna help you know, do I think poverty can be eliminated? I do actually. I I I I think the poor will always be among us. But it's a fact that if if people really wanted to end hunger, we could. I don't. I think that there's too much selfishness in this world, overall. That it will. I think that it, I don't think it'll ever end. But I'm sure gonna do my part in helping it end. And if I can, and because I believe that's why I'm here, and I believe that's why my sons are here, and I believe that's what leaders do, and and so that's why we do it. We do it, Generation Alive, and that's what I do with my boys, and that's how I raise my boys.
1: Jeremy, your blog is life, justice, and Major League Baseball. I alluded to the fact that there's a lot of you know religious overtones to it. Were you always religious? And I, uh, I guess yeah, I well, asked. You know, I
0: was, yeah, no, I was. I was actually always raised in a Christian home. Um, I, I think that uh, you know I, when I was, so I was brought up in in a home of Christianity. I think when I when I went away to play baseball at 18 years of age, that's where basically you know i had the rubber met you know the road you know like for me it was like okay am i going to am i going to continue down this road because now it's my own choice i don't go to church cuz my parents wake me up every sunday you know and say we're going to church yeah. you go because you want to go and and i broke down man and i started doing my own stuff i went on my own journey and and i i i had great encounters and i had a, i've always been someone that had a relationship with jesus christ that's who that's who i am but the fact of the matter is when someone says – I even went through times where it's like, are you a Christian? I wanted to be like, uh, I don't really know if I really want to say yes to that because I think Christianity gets put in this whole, like, genre of people. And I think that the way some Christians have treated human beings is just an atrocious, and it's not what Jesus has asked us to do, the guy that I follow, right? And so for me, it's like, I, you know what, I – so they said are you not a christian i said you know what i'm a follower of jesus christ that's who i am and if you want to put me in if you want to say christian fine say it but don't put me in with those people over there that are trying to that are trying to like do mean things and pick it against people's sexuality and 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 i might be someone that's pro-life but i can tell you right now i'm not going to blow up an abortion clinic you know so don't tell me don't put me with that group and 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 don't put me within these groups that that sit there and get so angry at the gay and lesbian lifestyle, because I'm not a part of that group. So I don't want to be a part of that either. So I want to be someone that says, no, I I love my neighbor as myself. I I work off of two commands, and that's love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and that's love your neighbor as yourself, against which I think there is no law, meaning I do not think that you can ever come against me because I believe in those two things. And you can't say I'm a bad person because I believe in those two things. So I, I, for one, say I love my neighbor as myself. And I might have – I might disagree with people's lifestyle choices. I might disagree with people's morals, but they can disagree with mine. And as long as you don't hate me and and, 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 and shame me because of what I believe, then I'm, then, then I'm fine with you because I don't want to hate you and shame you for what you believe. And I might disagree with you, but you're a human being, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to have dinner with you, and I'm going to go out and have drinks with you, and I'm going to share a beer with you. I don't really care. You know, and and we can have great conversations, but I'm going to love on you because that's the kind of Jesus I follow, and that's who I am. And so I write blogs based on that, and I do use my spirituality, and I do have verses in the Bible in which I talk about based on those things. But I will never bring condemnation to you because that's not my call. And I've been blown up by the conservative Christian people. I mean, my blog's been attacked by conservative Christian people, and I'm like, you can attack me all you want. But I don't find any I don't find any scripture backing how you guys treat people. I'm going to treat people with love, and that's what I'm going to do because it's all I have control over, and that's what I blog about.
1: Jeremy, you have a, an inspiring story here, and and I know I passed you. I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to let you go on this. Knowing your beliefs and what you blog about and your mission with Generation Alive, I'm just curious when you're in a major league locker room are you as vocal as you are now? Like, is it almost hard to, to have these feelings and these thoughts and, and live the life that you want to live in the confines of a major league organization and in a locker room where there's a lot of people who are going to have a lot of different opinions about, about how not only are you living your life, but the way they're living theirs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And no, it's not, you know, I, I found out, man, I, I, you know, there has been a lot of damage done uh, by religious people in, in, in sports locker rooms, a lot of it, because a lot of guys don't know how to do certain things. And they think that getting on their soapbox and throwing out chapter and verse and always holding people accountable based on a belief system is, is, is like I'm doing my duty. You're not doing your duty. And, and for me, I always looked at it this way. I will give you, I'm going to, people are going to know who I am and what I stand for. There's no doubt about that. And you know, I might go, and, and you know, one of the say I won't say, say his name, uh, I'll, I'll keep his name, but I remember I sat down, I walked into a bar one time with a teammate in San Francisco and he didn't know, he was sitting there and I bought him a beer and I had a beer with him and he looked at me, he says, you're not supposed to drink. And I said, what? He goes, you can't drink beer. And I said, based on what? And he says, well, the Bible says not, you're not supposed to drink. I said, actually, the Bible, I said, first of all, I got to ask you a question. Do you believe in the Bible? And he said, No. I said, then you probably shouldn't hold me to it. Because if you don't believe in it, you can't you can't judge me on it. I said, however, I said, let me ask you something. I said, I I said, Do you think that the Bible says I can't drink? Or do you think the Bible says don't get drunk? And he said, Well, don't get drunk. I said, Wait. I said, I'm two hundred and twenty five pounds, my friend. I said, You think one one of these beers is gonna make me drunk? I said, I I, I got a lot of this a lot of alcohol to go in this thing to get me drunk. And I said, and the reason why we're not supposed to get drunk is because then I lose self-control. And when I lose self-control, I make poor decisions that don't reflect the man that I follow. I said, and so that's why, that's why I don't get drunk. But I said, I will have a beer with you, and let's converse. And we had one of the greatest talks on spirituality that I've ever had over a beer. And this guy, it's because he loosened up and he said, man, you're not like everybody else that just judges me for what I do. And I said, man, I'm going to tell you this. I will always love you. I said I will always love you as a human being, and I will always love you as a teammate. You might make a ch- decision or a choice that I would not make. I won't follow you in making that decision. If you ask my opinion and you say, Jeremy, do you think what I did was right or wrong? I will then clarify and say, let me let me clarify Are you asking my opinion. And if you say yes, I will say, well, in my opinion, I don't think what you did was right, and this is why. But if you don't ask my opinion, I will never give it to you. But I will always treat you as my friend, as a teammate, and I will always love you, so know that, and man, I'm telling you, that opened up so much for me, because now, I was able to express, everybody knew, and that giant, you can ask any one of those Giants players, any Rockies player, anybody I played with, they will know what I stood for, and they will say, man, I appreciate that, and, and I've had so many compliments from non-believing, non-religious teammates that said, man, I appreciate how you handled me, and how you just never really came across as like a judgmental person, and I said, because that's not – I said, yeah, because you go across to any of these other Christians that are judgmental and pounding the law and telling them they can't do this and they can't do that. How is that working for them? Are they well-received? No, they're not. And I said, I'm not going to be well-received a lot of times just because of who I stand for, but I guarantee you, you get to know me. And the one that I followed, Jesus Christ, and said the sinners loved being around him because he just, he just loved them. He didn't judge them and condemn them all the time. And I said, we're all sinners, man. I mess up just like you do. I said I might not mess up in the same ways, but I still mess up. I do things that probably are not right. I say things that probably are not right. I think things that probably are not right. So why am I any better than you? I said I'm just gonna make sure I love you, man, and I'm gonna encourage you. And if you have ever want to ask me a question or an opinion, I'll give it to you. But until then, I have no right to step in and try to push something on you that you're not ready for. And it was great. And and I've I've run my whole career that way. And I've had I have a lot of friends. In fact, honestly. Some of my closest friends are actually a, a non-Christian friends because it's so much easier sometimes to hang out with those guys because they're like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, like this is out. We don't have to always like live up to a chapter and verse that everybody else throws at you, you know. And so for me, it's uh, it, it's a great time, and that's just who I am, and I and I'm unashamed to say that, and I'm unapologetic for it.
1: Phenomenal uh, story, career path, generation alive. Not to mention the blog, life, justice, and Major League Baseball. They'll be in the show notes as well. Uh, Jeremy, I, you know, we met the other day. I wanted to get you on the show. I can't thank you enough for your time, and and I'd love to have you back to actually talk about some of the things that happen on the baseball field as well, yeah, uh, down sure. the road. But but thanks so much for for the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man.
1: Well, quick thanks to Jeremy once again for popping on the show with us. I know, uh, really, a great mission, uh, Generation Alive, and helping kids out and having kids help other kids. Just uh, really cool. Hope you guys enjoyed the story. Not to mention, uh, in some way, also inspired by by some of the work Jeremy and his team are doing out there in the community. Once again, it'll be in the show notes if you want to help out or, or even check out Jeremy's blog. Next week on the show, I am lucky enough to call him a friend. He's a former colleague. His name has popped up on this podcast more than a few times. He works at CBS now, but he was with us at Pac-12 Network. He coached at uh, Washington, Colorado, UCLA. Rick Neuheisel, uh, the always entertaining uh, <laughs> Rick Neuheisel is going to be on the show next week. So once again, continue to subscribe to the show. Let your friends know. Pass it along on so social media and uh, always appreciate you guys downloading and listening.